1: Welcome to episode 37 of your Missing the Point podcast, where we discuss the weird, the wonderful, and the downright bizarre aspects of life, as we have conversations with people from all over the world. Today, I'm joined by a fellow Victorian, a woman who questioned the government's decisions, motivations, and dared to ask why. She's a concerned citizen of the Arrow Ranges that has challenged the council's proposed urban design framework. Her concerns, I believe, are well justified, as people within our circles know this framework by another name. 15-minute cities or 20-minute neighbourhoods if you're a Victorian. Let us welcome Belinda from the community group My Place. Welcome, Belinda.
0: Thank you, Drew. Thanks for having me on.
1: No worries. Um, I was directed your way by uh, an acquaintance and it's fantastic to get you on because this is probably one of the biggest stories that no one seems to be talking about.
0: Yeah, I'm surprised that um, it's going under the radar and every time we do happen to mention it, we're simply regarded as crazy conspiracy theorists and I've done a lot of research this I didn't wake up one morning and go oh I might look into this 15 minute neighbourhoods it's actually something that I came upon um, by just listening to planning Victoria discuss this concept on a zoom meeting that I just stumbled across and that actually made me look into this a little bit more. So that's how I started. And something just didn't sit right with me, and that's when I started reading legislation and started questioning.
1: Yeah, it's we've been talking behind the scenes for a little while now before we set this episode up, but it's absolutely fantastic to know that there's more level-headed people out there who are just questioning decisions made by governments and I think all voters all constituents all citizens should have that ability to ask questions as to why what's the motivations behind setting in legislation or, or bringing in schemes or new developments and no one seems to be to do that anymore people just seem to go along with the flow of oh the governments decide to bring an initiative in or a, a new mandate or some kind of new legislation and they just go from there. They think it's fine. They don't question why it was put in place or where it's going to go to, where it could potentially lead. So I thought it'd be a good place to start off with who you are. Tell us about yourself and how you kind of got involved with uh, my place and the events that have been happening since all the start of the year now.
0: Mm -hmm. So a bit of background. So obviously um, I'm from Victoria and having come out of lockdown, I found a lot of disconnection in our community by, um, through the division, I believe, through mandates and things like that. And the right for someone to make a decision about bodily autonomy was very important to me. And funnily enough, people who speak to me and who, um, across what I do, their automatic reaction is that I'm unvaccinated. And I actually am vaccinated. We made choices, um, my husband and I, uh, as to the reasons why we did that. Uh, We were never uh, wanting that sort of mandate put upon people that we knew if they didn't want to proceed with that. So, for instance, I'm an employer, I have four staff and I never told my staff that that was something that they had to do. I actually said to them from the very beginning was that whatever they choose to do, I would be supportive of that, irrespective of the risks and ramifications that could potentially have come upon myself and my business. And I guess from that I started to question morality and the morality of people that were around me. And from that, I met a number of people um, who were unvaccinated and I listened to their stories and it just broke my heart that we were in a society that this was taking place. It was horrible. There was one gentleman who I met and uh, he was talking about having to chop some wood and it was in his late 50s, I think early 60s and he couldn't afford to heat his home because he'd lost his job, never been unemployed in his life and stories like that just resonated with me and I thought what can I do to help to to make people see that what's actually happened over the last 12 months when that sort of had started, you know, isn't depictive of what society really is. So from that we had a small group of about 10 of us and um, we used to catch up and we used to just do supportive things for each other, you know, if someone needed a hand gardening or anything that we would just help out. And I floated the idea of uh, of opening up a my place in Yarra Valley to actually start to introduce and in, um, invite people who had felt isolated and lost to reconnect. And that was well received by Ian Bergworth, who people would know his brother, Darren Bergworth, who... Started the initial My Place in Frankston. Now, when that was started in Frankston, that was really for people to come and have a coffee who couldn't go into cafes. And when we talk about this, I mean, we're in 2023 and we talk about people being unable to walk into a cafe. It's just, it's just crazy. So,
1: it's hard to believe we actually ever lived through those times and even. Harder to believe that people have completely moved on and and forgotten about it, like no, you were just right. like you were just mentioning. It's um it's a strange dichotomy of thought that we have people who can instantly label you as an anti vaxxer for your views or unvaccinated. I myself, I'm a Victorian public school teacher, so I was mandated along with majority of the people in the state who have a, who held a job, and I just for my views around personal bodily autonomy, I called an anti vaxxer even though I'm vaccinated. Sure I didn't want it, but apparently I'm still an anti vaxxer. Yeah. <laughs>
0: it's and it's it's really it's crazy. It really is. It's it's just and, and when I and look, when you're living in the moment, it doesn't seem so ridiculous. But as we look back, so we started my place in Yarra Valley uh, probably about June of June, July of last year, so twenty twenty two. So it's been going for now over twelve months. Uh, so a lot of this is still very fresh in a lot of these people's mind. And um, when we started it, we basically just we just put something out on socials to come and um, join and, you know, get together with some like-minded people who bit over the bureaucracy that's been going on for the last prior 12 months. And I think the first meeting we had about 80 or 90 people turn up and we were quite surprised by that. And that's just grown organically Um, and the feedback that we receive from a lot of people is that a lot of the people who are are now regulars of my place in Yarrabelly were in complete despair. And I didn't realise at the time how significant this was to a lot of these community members and you know, a lot of them have now become family and and very, very good friends. And and it's actually, and it's very different. I mean, we talk about my places. I think there's about 150 of them now throughout the country, but they're all run very independently of the other. So something that we may do in Yarra Valley may not necessarily be something that they do in Shepparton or Albury or, you know, the Gold Coast. So we're trying to make it very specific to the areas of which one lives and to actually concentrate on that area rather than, you know, a lot of what we were experiencing was we were worrying about what was going on globally, but we wanted to actually bring it back to the grassroots of where we live and worry and concern ourselves a bit about what's happening in our neighbourhood. Because we had an element of control of that.
1: That's what Whereas I like about no... what you. Sorry, that's mm-hmm. what I like about what you guys have done. It's a, it's a broader, larger community group, but it decentralizes itself by having individual little bodies or groups all around the place that are focused on what that community needs at the time. What it's what its members need. It's not a, a whole approach of this is what Australia is doing or this is what Victoria is doing. You're putting it at a point of need, which is just a great way to be.
0: Correct. And that's one thing that I liked about it because we become so focused on what was happening globally, especially with the pandemic, that we forgot to concentrate on our own sort of core group of people being our own families and our own communities. So I guess that's something that we wanted to reinforce. And unfortunately, as we've become bigger and obviously it's very difficult to, and I'm going to use this word for lack of another word, but to control people because we're very much about we don't, at my place, you're free to do what you want, think what you want, um, all we ask is that whatever you do is that you do it respectfully and and therefore we do have a varying group of people with varying opinions and people assume that because you're part of my place that, you know, you're a flat earther or you're a, um, you know, you, you hate councils and things like that. But we have a lot of different people who have a lot of different views, you know, um, and but we can have a discussion. And we hope to have it respectfully. So, so what we tried to do was actually start some sort of subgroups. So when we first started, we started with like a gardening group and uh, a health and well being. They were two very prominent groups that people wanted to look at doing because obviously people wanted to look at alternate health. People had a lot of um, questions around the health system in the country Um, and therefore a lot of people wanted to look at what alternative methods there were to um, traditional medicine and things like that. So that created a very large health and wellbeing group, which is still running successfully today, and that just keeps growing. Um, and with the gardening and food group, that was looking more at sustainability of, of, of growing vegetables and, um, you know, nutrient-dense foods for the community and also supporting local farmers um, with produce. So we go out and we source being in the Yarra Valley, we're very fortunate because we can source lots of fresh fruit and vegetables. So when we catch up on a fortnightly basis, we do what, what we call a pantry order. We go around to all the farms, get the eggs and, you know, whatever fruit and veggies there are, uh, meats. And um, and then we come together a fortnight and then the order's there and people can buy them. So they feel like they're doing something good for their community because we're supporting local farmers. So that's sort of organically continued since we first started. And then, you know, people assume that we've got together and we're all about, um, you know, the government and, and, and getting back at the government and the councils and things like that. Well, it never actually, it was never like that. When we actually started to look at going to the council, the way that happened was that people were complaining about, our local council, as many people have done and as we probably all have for many, many years. And I'm of the opinion if you're going to sit back and complain about something, then we need to actually be active to, to and do something because then what's the point of complaining? So I said to the group, well, if people are interested, we could have like a council action group, but we would need to have a significant amount of support in order for that to go ahead because I wasn't going to pursue concerns with what council was doing if we only had half a dozen people. So at the first meeting, I think we had about 50 people turn up from my place who were actually interested in pursuing um, council and what their agendas are and actually being involved and needing to understand what the council was doing and you know, have a group where we could have a voice because if you go to council, and I don't know if you've ever been to a council meeting, it's very intimidating, you know, you might go up there and want to have a talk to the councillors and things like that and, you know, usually it's just one person against a bureaucracy of people and it's not in your favour. You know, what I have... Um, discovered and what I believe is that the, that element of democracy is a show it doesn't exist and it really saddens me to think that way because I was always an optimist in terms of truly believing that we had democratic laws and democratic, ways of interacting with the council but in the last sort of six months since dealing with them I really do feel that it's not the case it it really isn't
1: so so being an optimistic person and an upstanding citizen someone of the community who's a business owner an employer of people in the community this type of world I dare say would have come at you really quickly you've well walked into these council offices like you said they're intimidating And Shakespeare's quoted as saying, the world's a stage. And I think you really do see that when you see local councils. I think a lot of the time people are optimistic like ourselves who didn't know about this world until we we put our nose into it. We thought that local government was the best government, that you had a chance of having your voice heard. You're in that community. It's small, it's grassroots in comparison to a state or federal level. But the bureaucracy runs deep and it runs even at the lowest levels. So did you find that it was just a, a case of you didn't feel like your voice was being heard or was it the the tar and feathering of being associated with a group which we know that a lot of government bodies and media outlets label with uh, fringe elements like conspiracy theorists or, like you said, flat earthers, they, they throw all these buzzwords at you to try and lessen your your say or your point of view to try and dismiss you as a as a credible person with those types of labels did you find that was hindering you as well
0: um, definitely and the the credibility they're trying to make us appear less credible and i'll just go back to because obviously um when the Urban Design Framework came out for Mombog and we had sort of started being aware of, you know, 15 and 20-minute neighbourhoods, you know, that was sort of, you know, starting to sort of filter through from the UK. And when we actually sat down and we read what we call the Urban Design Framework, so the UDF for Mombog, the words that were actually within that framework were very reminiscent of what we had read um, about 15- and 20-minute neighbourhoods in other countries. So as a group and as a council action group, we sat down and we actually read the agenda. We're not just turning up at council, you know, with knives and pitchforks and, um, you know, we've actually gone and read this. And one of the, um, a couple uh, actually put in a submission to the council and there were about, I think, 30-odd questions that they had put to the council and this was put to the council on the 13th of December. And from the 13th of of December until about the 31st of January, we had still not had a response to those questions. Now, the people who had submitted those questions to council had um, made contact uh, on a regular basis with council and talking to one of the um bureaucrats there that were that they were dealing with asking for answers and you know some of the responses that they were getting was that oh, well I'm not sure what that means I've got to go and speak to somebody else and so we were becoming very quite disheartened by the fact that we felt that we were just being dismissed and the results Uh, You know, so as most people are aware, on the 31st of December, they shut down the meeting and, you know, they're citing unruly behaviour. But what actually happened on the 31st of December is that there might have been about 120 of us and we're all sitting there. The average age was probably over 55. um, And Ian stood up and said, excuse me, Mayor, I was just wondering when we were going to get the responses to our 30 questions, and he was basically told to sit down. This was not the time and the place. And he said, but we've been waiting, you know, but we want the responses to this. And he was basically dressed down like a child. And the mayor said, well, if you're not going to sit down, I'm going to close the meeting. And Ian said, well, if you're not going to answer our questions, then you have to close the meeting because... We wanted those answers. Anyway, they shut down the meeting and that's when they actually called the police. And we refused to leave because we thought, well, no, we're we're here to seek some answers. As a result of the police turning up, we'd actually negotiated through the police to actually have a meeting then with um, some of the councillors and also some of the staff, myself and Ian, And uh, as a result of that, we actually got responses to those questions, I think, three or four days later. So, you know, people are talking about intimidation. There was definitely no intimidation or anything at the time that the meeting was stopped. And, you know, when you look at the, the geographical age of the people that were there, You know, we had some people who were on, you know, like little trolley things that they have to, you know, keep themselves up. So I was probably the youngest person there. Um, And emotions were heightened. Yes, we were very upset by the fact that we were being ignored. Um, Were there any threats or any danger to anybody? Definitely not. And I feel that that was perpetuated purely by the council and when you talk about the mayor, and I'm still considering my options here, he's basically referred to us, and I would take that as me, as being the leader of, um, well, not the leader, but just someone who started my place. I don't consider myself a leader. I think we're all, we're, we're, we're all equal. Um, but he basically called me an anti-vaxxer and a Holocaust denier and I actually stood up and I did a submission at the council and I confronted him. But by this stage, we went not allowed in the um, at council meetings. This was all done online. And I sort of and I said to him, I said, as a vaccinated resident, I've personally been at Auschwitz and you know a lot of other World War II um, places over in Europe. You know what you're asserting as to the person that I am, is deeply upsetting. And now, you know, if I try to have connections on socials, you know, I'm called a cult leader, um, you know, a a holocaust denier. And it's just, you know, the mayor has an obligation um, to not do those things and to actually come out and say that And people are not actually questioning whether that's right. No, you you would expect that
1: a mayor of a council area would have a a bit more professionalism to to defame someone in the public arena like that, let alone gaslight people who he may not want to answer questions from. It's not very professional at all. If you saw that in any kind of a... A business setting or say in education, that person would very quickly be hauled before a, a governing body and be dealt with. This brings me to a, a point that we're seeing some of the largest papers in our state and our country come out with smear campaigns against what's been going on with your group. So one of those papers for our listeners is The Age. So The Age is one of the largest papers in the country, and they led with a an opening statement about um, My Place and in particular, Darren Dixon. So, this opening statement reads as, and I quote An associate of a group that has been disrupting local meetings to shout anti government theories has taken a Melbourne council to the Supreme Court in its decision to close meetings to the public. So, they've labelled Darren and community members of My Place as conspiracy theorists, intimidating, and conducting themselves in abusive behaviour. So, this is what they're telling a paper. That's then putting it out to the whole state, if not the whole country. Was your group ever consulted by the age in the writing of this story to get the other side of the, of the opinion of what's going on and what happened?
0: Um, I can only speak for myself. I, I'm not aware of um, anyone making contact. They may have tried to contact Darren Dixon, but I believe he may have declined because there was a hearing that was taking place and I guess he didn't want to have any discussion in case that affected the outcome of that. Um, In terms of Darren Dixon, you know, we actually um, approached Darren to actually help us because he's part of the Constitutional Watch and unfortunately the legal system, there's not many people in the legal industry who are willing to take on um, these sorts of cases. And when we were denied access to um, further council meetings, that's when we started to question, you know, at what point does the government and our local council have to prove that their decisions are founded? They've just cited unsafe behaviour um and threatening and violence and, you know, we've asked them, well, you record these meetings, let's let's see that violence. You know, we had someone say to us, oh, you know, someone threw a chair, <laughs> you know, and it's like when you're trying to talk to people and say, I was actually there and none of this happened and... It's very frustrating because all of a sudden the papers that I used to read and I used to make assumptions about stories all of a sudden those stories have now been turned around and I'm and I wouldn't say I'm a victim because I don't feel like a victim I'm I'm very strong and I will continue to stand up for what's right and wrong but they're trying to discredit us and that's not going to happen with myself. I'm very confident in what I believe. And I, and, you know, if there's a conspiratorial undertone, what's wrong with that?
1: Well, it's it, like- it's, it doesn't make them look any better that they shut down government uh, or local council meetings to its constituents. That seems pretty conspiratorial to me. What are they trying to hide and why aren't they allowing their constituents to ask valid questions about their about their local government area?
0: Correct. And when you see, so, for instance, and even I'm not sure if you watched the court case because it was aired, um, you know, the urban design framework never mentioned anything about 20-minute neighbourhoods. But yet the minute we started to raise that, all of a sudden, the Yarra Rangers Council put on their website, which I think it might still be there, to talk about 20-minute neighbourhoods. But yet the urban design framework never mentioned 20-minute neighbourhoods. So we've actually brought a light, the correlation, because if we didn't, then it wouldn't have been stated. So the fact that we've highlighted that an urban design framework, which has been prepared today not 10 years ago, not 20 years ago, is a 20-minute neighbourhood. And they've agreed and confirmed that we're correct. So in order then to, again, discredit what we believe is a potential uh, occurrence moving forward, is that they say to you that a 20-minute neighbourhood is this wonderful concept where you have everything that you need within a 20-minute return walk so it sounds fantastic and I was having a discussion with somebody on the um on socials not long after that and I actually said to them about mombok I said what is it in mombok that you don't have that you need and there was just no response and I said so what they're trying to tell you is that you need this and you're thinking that you need this, but you don't actually know why you need this because you need to walk, you need to ride. I mean, I haven't been on a bike since I was 15. I, I don't want to get on a bike. The last time I was on a bike, I fell off it. Just I'm
1: 35 and my knees wouldn't hold out at this stage.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so so these concepts that they're trying to put on you is to make you think that you actually need and want this. And that's in the wording and and it's they, very clever.
1: They wrap it up in this neat little package and they present it in a way that it's great for the environment, it's great for local economies. They put the positives on all of it, but they neglect to realise we've seen this happen in other countries around the world. We've seen what's happened in Oxford with the rollout of their version of this, where they put bollards up in the centre city streets so where you can't drive beyond a couple of blocks from your house anymore. And they give it to the POMs to go out in the middle of the night and knock bards over to get rid of them so they could actually go on their merry way. But it definitely has elements of controlling movement. And you even see it within Agenda 2030 and a lot of the other um, World Economic Forum and UN agendas. It specifically says it wants to limit the movement of people to reduce greenhouse emissions for the environment and to stop climate change. That's what they put it down as. And of course they they like they enter this into local government areas and councils get them to sign on board to it because you know it looks great on paper. it's great for your um your score as a ESG score, but it's the people at the end of the day that get stuck with the ramifications of it and it's really disheartening to hear that you've got a council which in the past in Australia we've always referred to councils as the three r's. Roads, rates, and rubbish. It's really all they should be concerned with. But now we find that these local governments, they're taking on global agendas and things that are outside of their purview and their knowledge base and thinking that they're the ones that can solve the climate crisis or they can solve issues of um, gender equality and all these broader big picture things that even our federal government can't master. So you've got these clowns in these local councils, and sorry I'm getting a bit carried away here, but they're absolutely doing things that are way beyond their pay grade. So um, I can understand why there must have been frustration at that meeting night, especially after simple twenty questions couldn't be answered.
0: Correct, right. and I um, and this is this is where you know when they're promoting these types of um, you know, these neighborhoods, you know, they're saying things that you know they're going to fix the housing shortage. They're going to ensure that there's no poverty and zero hunger and there's going to be quality education and, you know, gender equality, Um, you know, you'll have access to water and, you know, sanitation and, you know, all while tackling climate change and things like that. And and my question is, you know, is that if you actually believe that your government, right, (laughs) intends to solve the climate crisis, without actually quashing your inalienable rights to actually just live life, you know, and, you know, just have liberty in a pursuit of happiness, then it's just not going to happen.
1: Definitely it's not. Just,
0: it's not going to happen. And I've used this, um, Milton Friedman once said that um, if you put the federal government in charge of the Sahara Desert, in five years, there would be a shortage of sand.
1: <laughs> Very so, true.
0: Yeah. So, so this is where we need to stop looking at our government for solutions to our problems. That's not saying, saying that none of us should be sustainable and none of us should be looking after the planet and and using less. You know, um, to the contrary, we should all be concerned about those sorts of things. You know, looking at you know um, if, you know looking at self- sustainability in terms of growing our own foods and vegetables and doing more community gardens and and things like that, that's a way that we can actually, you know, work on sustainability. So I become very frustrated because I feel that people are caught up in the rhetoric and don't actually look beyond the reality of it all. So, um, you know, and, and people need to think as well, you know, where where is this going? I, I do get a little bit frustrated when people say, oh they're just going to lock us down in our houses. Well, I don't believe. I personally don't believe that that will happen. Um, it, that's not to say that a climate emergency one day won't be declared and and they'll say if your surnames from you know A to Z, you know you must stay home Monday to Thursday. <laughs>
1: Or your okay. power runs from six till seven o'clock, and that's what you get.
0: Well, well, that happens in South Africa. So yeah. it's, it's it's we've actually we we can we've got hindsight. So you know that's that's a thing. But you know I don't. A lot of people aren't aware that you know I think thirty five out of seventy nine local governments in Victoria have declared a climate emergency.
1: Yes, um, and something to add on to that, I have a a good friend of the show who's been on a couple of times who works for a company that provides uh, diesel generators to big work sites, to mines and alike, like to keep them up and running because they're disconnected from the grid. Well, a lot of the, these companies, a lot, a lot like his, the chatter amongst that group is that local councils are actually looking to buy or lease these massive generators because they're being told that the grid's not going to be reliable over the next three to five years. And if yeah. they want baseload power, local councils are going to have to pay for it. So this agenda is just, it goes beyond um, what we do sustainability wise. It goes into just the general maintenance and, and the continuance of what a society is built on today. And I liken what's been happening with 15 minute cities or 20 minute neighborhoods, whatever you would like to call it. It looks really good on paper, but so did communism. Communism looks great on its face and it's, it's the values there look impeccable and amazing practice. It really doesn't work. And Unfortunately, I think we're falling down that same path in history that we're seeing these great philosophies and thinkers coming up with these grand plans but they've never actually put it into practice or considered what the ramifications would be and we're starting to live through that moment now.
0: Correct. And when we talk about it, even just among, with our kids and things like that, and we say, well, name one country where communists, communism has been positive. and but we, where I don't, I can't see anyone coming up with a response to that. And you know, the typical response is when we say in Victoria, we're very much leading into that sort of socialist type um, system. And I, what I refer to what's going on is political globalism that's that's what I feel is what we are dealing with at the moment um and when we talk about globalism from a political perspective in my opinion it actually will leave citizens a lot poorer um, because that becomes the requirement for control um whereas I think what we've dealt with in the past is more like an economic type globalism where it actually, um, you know, it promotes free trade and things like that. And we've moved away from that. And now we we'll are be coming into that political side of it. And I find that extremely frightening. And when we're looking at the political side of it, you know, that's where you're bringing in your United Nations, your World Economic Forum and your World Health Organisation. And we've seen the control that the WHO has had over the last few years. And if we start to, you know, Lump those three entities together um, and start to give them more power and control. I think we're going to be in a lot of strife.
1: It's, it's quite interesting. It's been pushed through inch by inch over the last 20 years. I can remember being in high school and we referred to it as Americanization. The world mm. was coming very Americanized um, economically, culturally. And through that cultural shift, especially through a lot of socialist ideals that Every Western country seems to be going through the motions of the same ideas, pushing the same types of agendas. And when you're getting the same message repeated on every news station, it's the same talking points, it's the same talking points in governments at federal, state, and local level, there's definitely a bigger player behind that. And like you said, it's that global government or global governance approach which is coming into it. But the really scary point that you noted on before was how many Victorian or Australian councils have declared a climate emergency. Now, the best of us know that local councils are a law unto themselves. They pretty much do what they want when they want. So what possible things can these councils do if they've declared an emergency? It boggles the mind as to how far they could possibly go with all of this.
0: Well, this is, and this is my question, is that, well, what does this mean? You know, does it mean, you know, and I'm like, well, we've got the city of Maroondah, which is right next to us. Now, they're not in a global emergency, but, you know, literally they're probably, you know, bit of a skip or a jump from, you know, the Yarra Ranges border, I just, if it wasn't so serious, it's actually quite comical because I just have to scratch my head and say to myself that there, there has to be a time that people actually have to stop and question. And I would like to think that I'm a reasonable person and I would more than happily, like, well, I actually quite enjoy having discussions with people who don't agree with me because I actually find that challenges my thoughts and it's very important because I'm not so fixated that I can't change my thoughts or opinions. Um, and I think it's healthy. But there is, but anyone who I try to discuss this with, it's just insults. I just become I just get insulted. And it's not and I but I'm actually happy to have a respectful discussion. And it just doesn't seem
1: It's very one sided, isn't it? Yeah. It's um if only your local government could have the same approach to things, then mm. who knows how far we could get. Yeah. Are there any members of your council at all that are receptive to what's going on that are kind of bucking the trend at all, or is everyone in lockstep on this?
0: No, from, from what we can tell is that they're all very much indoctrinated into that, um, that system. And, you know, I've, I've tried to, um, like I've sent numerous emails to them uh, and I've had not a single reply from any no. counsellor.
1: That's very depressing. Like we've spoken outside of the show that my own local council, the Trobe City Council, have done something very similar. They've locked our constituents out um, in relation to their position on the Hayfield timber mill being shut down and Victoria's um, approach to logging now. We still haven't been allowed back into these council meetings, so we're going down a very similar route to what your, what your group is doing, but it's very disappointing that not a single person on that council is at least willing to listen. Like, we've got three members on our active council at the moment who are dead against these lockouts. They're actively speaking at events and trying to get it open back up. So
0: yeah, I'm so sorry
1: that you've got that very dogmatic view of these councils in your area. Uh,
0: well, look, I mean, you know, I think City and Knox seem to be quite good at having discussions. Um, look, I think with our council, we have a lot of councillors that have been on... In that position for a very long time. And I believe that it's come to a point where sometimes it's easy for these counsellors just to be told than to actually stop, reflect, think, and question. And human nature, and I used to be like this, I would trust the word of somebody in a position of some power. So, you know, if a bureaucrat that I trusted and I felt was honest, you know, spoke to me about something such as, say, climate change, for instance, and they came to me with some reports, I would probably in the past have just taken that at face value. But what I've learned over the last few years is that people take advantage of that graciousness and I can't be swindled anymore and I won't be. And I really do plea to people who use that sort of personality type to trust others. To actually start to become a little bit more distrusting, and it's not ingrained. It's not ingrained in me to do that. I, I, even now, the people who are around me at my place, they say, Belinda, you know, just he's got to, and I'm like, yeah, okay, because <laughs> I'd like to give people the benefit of the doubt. And um, even now, I still have to be pushed, pulled back to stop and actually, you know, look at that a bit more. Um, pragmatically and yeah, not, not jump in and, and believe what I'm told. So, and that's a bit of retraining as well.
1: It is definitely is. Now, just in this conversation we've had t- tonight and in previous conversations, I've got to say, if anyone should be a council member on the council, it should be you. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> your your group definitely needs some kind of culture blocking initiative where you try to get someone on the inside to keep the bastards honest, because we need people who are open to having discussions, who are open to being challenged and to open to feeling uncomfortable. It, is, it can be very confronting having someone push a a view or an idea at you that you may not agree with. But if you're unable to actually take that in and and think about it and process it and rebut it or dismiss it in a intellectual and professional way, we've just got people who, like you said, are the yes men that are just going through the motions of what they've been told. Mm. So we need more people like... Like yourself or people from my place to try and get themselves into like whenever the next council election is, and you need they need new members, put someone in. You've got a culture block that
0: we have. We have spoken about that um, as my place, and it's something we may consider. Um, yeah,
1: because even I, one person I, would be a thorn in the side.
0: Yeah, Um, to be perfectly honest, I think if you wanted to really challenge the status quo, you would probably need to hold at least a majority. So I think at our council, there might be seven or eight. So you'd want at least three to four people there um, who can actually definitely challenge it and um, really probably change the culture within the councils. Um, I think one of the submissions that I did say to them is that the council has been used, has gotten used to the apathy of residents. Therefore, it's be, it's made their job very easy. And all of a sudden, you know, we turn up and we start saying, hang on a minute, and, you know, we might boo or, you know. And, and mind you, one thing that I find quite funny is that you know, we've been to these meetings and we've clapped when a councillor has made a decision that we like. And we've also jeered when they've made a decision that we don't. Now, it's funnily enough, they don't mention that, that, you know, we were supportive. Uh, you know, they only mention all the negatives. But, you know, it's a bit tit for tat, really. You know, if we don't like it, we're going to tell you. If we like it, you'll know. And I think that's Okay.
1: Well, surprise, surprise! That's how feedback works. You praise oh. someone when you enjoy what they're doing, and you 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 actually give them a little bit of shit when they're making really poor decisions, which is well, completely fine. As a ratepayer, you should be able to voice your opinion.
0: I know, absolutely it's, crazy. We've just, yeah, and so it's it's become so ridiculous in terms of you know you can't have a thought, you can't have an opinion. You know, unless it's there to actually pat them on the back, you know, you consider some right wing extremists It's there, you know, following them after dark to their vehicles. I mean, (laughs) I've got better things to do than that. In fact, I've got better things than sitting at a boring council meeting for three hours every fortnight. But I'm doing that because I actually genuinely care what's going on in my, um, in where I live. And and, and it's a necessity so now.
1: Know. Yeah. You have to. You kind of have to put yourself out there because, like you said, you saw the things that have happened in the last three years. And you, unless you're willing to actually go out and listen and confront and challenge ideas, you're just the person at home that's complaining about the things that they see on the news. And Correct. it's not going anywhere. Your efforts aren't being actually, your energy's not going to anything good.
0: No. And, and the typical response to that is, oh, well, they're not going to change anyway. And my response to that is, I would rather do something and achieve nothing then do nothing. And I say that to people all the time because irrespective of how much influence we may or may not have, if you can make a small change, at the end of the day, I can actually stand up and be proud of myself and know that I've done the best that I can do. And you know, we're not going away. We're, we're, we're waiting for the response to this court case that um, obviously was just held last Thursday. And um, one thing that I'm interested in the de- determination from that is basically about the question, because there were seven, I think, seven questions that were asked of the Supreme Court judge. And one of them was that um, is the council um, obligated to open its meetings to the public. And I believe when we say open to the public, not via A Zoom link online or. Zoom. Yeah. yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how that comes back. Um Again, look, we're a bit green in terms of the process. Uh, if you probably asked Darren, I'm sure that he would agree that we could have done things better or differently or, you know, but we did do a lot of submissions prior to the actual hearing. So one thing that people may not have seen if they did tune in was details and copies of all the affidavits that we actually had written and submitted so um, a lot of the information that the judge already had was in the form of our affidavits, which were in support of the questions that we wanted answered. So, um, so yeah, we'll just wait for, you know, what, what she returns with and, and then from there, whatever the outcome, you know, we tried. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so we have to be proud of ourselves and the community, you know, we funded it. Um, just between us, and um, and yeah, so we just we just have to be proud of whatever whatever the outcome. We have to be proud of of the result.
1: Well, it's very much a, a Goliath David and Goliath type of a story, even at such a small scale as a local community. Because going to the Supreme Court is no small feat, and to take that up on your back to take on a a, a government, it is a government at the end of the day, local government. It's absolutely amazing what you're doing and it'll be very disheartening and very disappointing if the verdict comes back from one of those questions that if councils aren't required to hold public meetings with their constituents and they only have to do it via zoom which is such a cop-out that realistically that equates to taxation without representation what are your rates actually going to if you're not actually having the ability to voice your concerns or to be heard
0: yeah correct and i agree and one thing that will be interesting too which i'm just i've got the um the question here was um whether the council can engage uh, um with and adopt united nations policies was actually one of the questions we asked of the supreme court judge <laughs> so you know we're going we're going big um and yeah, Yeah, when I believe, I can't remember which um, bureaucrat it was, but when he was being cross-examined by Darren Dixon, um, I think he asked straight out, he said, you know, is this a UN agenda, this urban design framework? And he just said no. And then we're like, well, he's just lied under oath because we do know that it's...
1: well, we know that. Do you think he, he honestly doesn't know that? Is he a useful well, idiot he... or do you think he, he just isn't aware of it? Like, does he is it not, and is he... He's just lying or <laughs> is he some dumb person who was handed a pamphlet from someone else and said, this will look great on your portfolio to say you've done this at local level?
0: That's right. I would agree with that sentiment except for the fact that when I had the meeting um, after the 31st of January, um, closure of that meeting, myself and Ian actually went and met with, I think it was the CEO, one of the, it was the governance officer, um, the planning officer, and there were about three or four um, councillors there. And my direct question to them was, why are you implementing a UN agenda at local government level? I asked them that directly to their face. And they said that we're not. And I said, "Well, where is it being derived from?" And they said, "Plan Melbourne." And I said, "Yes." And where is Plan Melbourne derived from? And the, their oh, the paper trail,
1: people. Was,
0: their response was, "That's a question for, Plan for your local your local MP." No. And then I responded to that. Well, I've written to my local MP asking them the same question and they've failed to respond. And then I sort of went over and I spoke to the mayor and I said to him, I said, I think, you know, um, silence is probably an admission of guilt. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: and, um, and then part of, you know, follow-up from that was I actually showed them the 17 Sustainable Development Goal picture that's on Plan Melbourne website with the United Nations logo at the bottom, and then I've directed them to the United Nations website that has the identical picture. And I said, well, can you please explain this? And there's just no response. So we're not just making up these stories. We've got we've got pictures that are on respective websites that are clearly identical. They refer to sustainable development goals. I asked the council at a meeting whether or not the urban design framework encompasses any of the 17 sustainable development goals that were um, created by the United Nations. And I actually said respectfully, can you answer it yes or no? Because they tend to waffle and actually not answer your question. And the response was yes, yes. So how can it not be a UN initiative if it encompasses some of the sustainable development goals that, were, uh, that, have been facil- that have been created by the United Nations?
1: It's like a duck walks like a duck sounds like a duck.
0: So they've clearly lied. And, I mean, fortunately I've put this information into my affidavit, so I'm hoping that the judge will actually look at that and can see that there is a correlation. And the fact that they're denying it just makes me think even more. Why? Why are you denying it? If this is such a good thing, why are you actually trying to dismiss this as a conspiracy theory?
1: Because it what hates- is the concern? <laughs> because it's so overtly true. Like you said, if it wasn't true, it'd be funny, but it's actually quite scary. When you look into the sustainable development goals and the ESG scores and everything alike, it quite clearly states that personal freedoms are not a concern for the global issues that are facing us. So we're, we're, we're moving into a, a techno-feudalism state where global governance is occurring, where the average person has less and less say in their day-to-day lives which is just a horrifying thought if you were to tell our parents generation about the things that are happening now they would have thought that the war was lost and these things all these things that they were trying to prevent had happened they'd be rolling in their graves at the thought of what's happening today
0: it's very concerning and even if we don't go down um the real conspiratory route like you know, <laughs> such as they're gonna lock us in our, you know, in our apartments and things like that. I have no doubt that there will be a charge on vehicles that are over a certain age. As well wow. nothing to do with the environment.
1: Well it's to speak pure- to speak to that. Victoria has its very own cash for clunkers happening at the moment. It's called unsafe too safe, where any car that's 16 years or older, the government's going to give you five grand for to put towards a brand new car. So they're actively mm-hmm. trying to get rid of unsafe cars, which as of next year goes back to a VE Commodore, which I'm driving and seems practically new. <laughs> These are considered unsafe. But when you look at what they're really trying to do, they're trying to push people to, electric cars, cars that are easily manageable, we know that can be turned off at the flick of a switch, and I'm kind of delving into the route of the conspiracy side of things, but it's going in line with a manageable system of society they want. We can say that to wear blue in the face that they're trying to control us in our in our smaller neighbourhoods, but at the end of the day really what they want to do is they want to push us into these cities where we've have CCTV, we've got all the things that uh, that make life easy for us in close proximity, so that we don't leave or go anywhere else. And I think we're seeing that more and more with what they're doing.
0: And not just that, I think we've actually—you'll find that there's a lot of people who are already at that point. You know, the work from home. Um, a lot of people have become so entrenched in 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 their lives are all around their homes and their neighbourhood because. That's what a lot of people did for 200 days. And so that's now become something they've become accustomed to. Now, not necessarily because it's something that they want, but through, I believe, mental health, um, uh, you know, having an inability to actually, you know, pick yourself up and go back on that train and go back into the city and things like that. It's it's changed the way that we're all living. Yeah. and. It's not necessarily because that's what we want. I think it's more that we don't know how to go back to the way that we were.
1: And that and- they've turned something that would have been what a lot of people would have considered a net positive. Like how many people want to do things in their own local community, in their own local neighbourhood, they want to work f- from home. But now it's it's the the depressing negative side of that. You're working from home because you can't possibly pull yourself together to hop back on the train, to go back into the city, to have a coffee with friend or or what have you. Or it's not the positives of having a community garden in your neighborhood. It's as a result of I'm staying at home, so I have to go to the local place. Not be the place I like, but I, I'm resulting to have to use it because it's in close proximity. So they've turned mm-hmm. something that should be a positive of that community level and turned it into a negative.
0: Yeah, I, and, and I'm seeing that too. And I don't know if in Gippsland it's the same, but I, I have two offices. One One's in Croydon and one's in Lilydale. You know, Croydon Main Street was so busy, you know, prior to COVID, and you couldn't even get into a cafe. And now, even now, when people are still out and about, or, you know, there's no restrictions, it's not busy. It's not like it was. And and I don't know why that is. I don't know whether it's a financial thing because people are struggling financially or whether it's it's, an, it's a physical issue that people are having that they don't want to. You know, the man of Uber Eats, you know, you're sitting at a cafe and, you know, there's 20 people standing there and they're all Uber Eats. It's just I'm very concerned about where this is going and it's, you know, they talk about these 20-minute neighbourhoods and, oh, it's going to be good, and they've got, you know, the heart foundation that's promoting it, you know, because, you know, that that in itself will make people think that these are fantastic for your health. You know, people aren't going to get up and walk to the local shops. They're just going to ring Uber Eats or Coles online. The actual detriment to society in terms of mental health and just physical health is going to decline Considerably, and irrespective of how they want to put this twenty-minute neighbourhoods and how it's going to be fantastic for everyone's health, it's going to it, it'll be catastrophic. Um, and they're already and and look, and this is maybe a conspiracy for me. You know, my son's trying to he's got his learner's permit at the moment. He's sixteen and he's got to drive for one hundred and twenty hours. I almost can guarantee that the reason that's been putting put in is to actually um prevent or make it difficult for these young kids to actually get their licenses because of the level of hours that they have to do for driving and you know we're going to see a big switch of kids that are going to be reliant on public transport you know they're already indoctrinating them in this in schools and in 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 what they're designing as a requirement for these sorts of things, for it all to happen. And, you know, we just accept it. Oh, you need 120 hours. You can't get your licence unless you have 120 hours, you know. How about just getting your licence when you're ready?
1: And here's a little bit of healthy speculation to go on on top of that. What happens if all the older cars are removed from the roads and all we're left with is either hybrid or electric vehicles, which cost absolute fortune. So what kind of kids are going to be able to afford that as their first car? Throw into that, there might be a usage tax on older vehicles where your registration is skyrocketing because you're using a gas guzzler. There's going to be a lot of things put in place that may not necessarily be the full conspiracy theory fringe element of they're just going to ban fossil fuels or they're going to lock you in the house. They might put just a lot of things in place that will make your life very difficult to the point that you comply. That's essentially what they've done over the past three years.
0: Exactly right. Have you heard of um, ultra low emission zones over in the UK? Yes. (laughs) So this is a perfect example of what's going on over there at the moment. And um, so... You know, people will have this argument going, oh, but they've had like a, you know, a, a ULEZ around London, you know, forever, you know, and it's like, yeah, that is now getting further and further out from London City to the point now where it's getting so far out that people who used to have, uh, like people say, like in um, shop fronts and things like that, that relied on people driving past or walking past to actually keep their businesses afloat are no longer having that traffic come through because of these ULEZs that are coming. And what that means is that if you have a non-compliant vehicle, I think for each trip you have to pay something like 12, point, $12, 12 pound 50 pence to travel into London. So, you know, that's a lot of money. If we put that in an equivalent, that would be, say, even if we said $30. So that would be if I had a non-compliant vehicle and I'm driving out from the Yarra Valley, you know, I wanted to go to Melbourne City, that would cost me $30 because I have a non-compliant vehicle.
1: And some which... people struggle to put $20 of fuel in their car and that doesn't get you far these days.
0: No. So, you know, and this is when, you know, again, the conspiracy of saying, oh, they're going to lock you in. They don't have to lock you in. They're going to make it so difficult for you financially that you'll have no choice but to stay in your neighbourhood. And that's the problem is because when you, when when they are implementing things that are going to affect your right of movement because of affordability, um and if you can't see that something's wrong with that, then oh, I don't know what to say to those people. It, it, we just shouldn't be at that. We, we should never get to that point. And, it, and I do fear that that is where we are headed.
1: Yeah, Um. and I don't know if you have the same concerns as I do as a Victorian, but the average Victorian just scares the absolute shit out of me today. That They can't <laughs> see the writing on the wall, the decisions that a government that's been in power for so long who continually just fucks up at what they do. They keep failing upwards and no one seems to think it's a bad thing. The latest with uh, the gas being a ban on brand new houses or government buildings as of next year. Well, what's going to happen? Let's put some things together. Let's connect some dots. Daniel Andrews, our state premier has booted back up the SEC. So he's got uh, a renewables led electric company that provides electricity to the victorian population well wouldn't it just make financial sense to get rid of one of your biggest competitors the gas companies throw on top of that maybe because of the emissions and the dangers to environment let's put a usage tax on all the existing households that have gas to drive the prices up to the point where they have to go to a, a electric stovetop or electric heating for the houses and if that does happen and things are so so hard for you to get by on gas or what you've got in existing houses and you eventually cave and you go to an electric system well who has the keys to the kingdom then who can switch off the power when they need to who can shut down an entire uh an entire voting electorate because they continually vote um, conservative oh that those people they don't need the the power for this um, heat wave we'll, we'll keep it in the areas that keep voting for me conspiratorial hmm. yes speculating yes but outside the realm of possibility no
0: definitely not and and i think the more power that he has and the less accountability the more frightening it's going to become with him in power because he the when you look at him there's such an air of arrogance that i Feel that he believes that he could do anything and oh, he'll he be thinks, untouchable.
1: He thinks he's a god. He's been quoted as saying during, I think it was the second set of lockdowns he announced at one of his presses. He left the press, sat down in the office, poured himself a scotch, and all his little cronies and his admin staff were patting him on the back, saying, Well done, Dan. And he sat there and he poured his drink. He said, Well, I'm not God, not yet. And what does he get now as the longest serving one of the longest serving premiers? He gets a bronze statue. He's literally being deified at the moment. <laughs> Throw on top of that. I
0: don't know that. how
1: long that's going to stay. Uh, stay it, it, I dare say it'll get some lovely street art attached to it. But he, like you said, it's Teflon Dan. We know him as that in our state because he keeps getting away with things. I don't know how many eyebacks he's been through now. He must be getting an award at the end of the year for the most appearances. Mm.
0: It's unreal.
1: If it was any other state, he would have lost his position already.
0: Yes, I agree. And look, again, um, my husband always tells me to ob- observe, not absorb, <laughs> <laughs> um, which he does much better than I do. I, I, I get very heightened emotionally because I guess must be the Italian in me. I'm very passionate <laughs> about what I believe, and I'm just a
1: fiery redhead, so I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, you know, and I am learning and this is all the learning, um, learning curve for me as well because um, as much as I've always been an advocate um, for things that I believe in and the first part of advocacy that I really stood up and took control was back when they were doing what we called electronic conveyancing. And, um, you know, I stood up and was ridiculed and again I was called non-progressive and things like that when I fought that but if I truly believe something and I may not be always right but I'll always be steadfast in my beliefs and I'll also be humble enough to say that I was wrong at the end of the day so um I guess moving forward you know we're still going to continue the trajectory that we're going in terms of you know, making councils accountable, ensuring that we're going to keep asking the questions and hopefully with the community group, you know, continue to grow and also, I guess, individually allowing each other to grow and progress. And a lot of people, um, like we've got one, you know, now we've actually got people who are fighting as a teacher, you'd appreciate this, the education um, of the children and and they've started doing that in terms of you know trying to look for some advocacy for parents against schools and what's been taught. I was on a i um I have a couple of kids who um have you know a couple of issues and we've got a pediatrician i had a chat with him last week, and he was saying to me that twenty percent. Of year seven students are identifying as non-binary. 20%. And yeah, my-
1: I, I'm seeing something yeah. very similar in primary school levels, which is staggering. And I can only put it down to being social contagion. It's so pumped in the mainstream media, in entertainment, that it's it's a message that kids are absorbing that it, it statistically it doesn't make sense for it to jump that much. It can't just be because we're more accepting or more tolerant as a society right. now. There's more happening there.
0: Well, I, my, my uh, response to that was that, and what are you doing about that?
1: Because <laughs> he's
0: a paediatrician. Um, and he said, you know, well, we're trying, but there's not much that we can do. And I said, well, you know, I, I think I know what it's called. And he said, what's that? And I said, it's called attention-seeking. Because when you're looking at a child in year seven, they're what, 12, 13? They don't know that they're non-binary. They just know that when they start saying these sorts of things is it that they get the attention that they're potentially not getting either at home or, you know, amongst their friends and all of a sudden they're becoming, I wouldn't say popular, but they're Becoming noticed.
1: Well, when all your heroes that you look up to, your singers, your entertainers, if every second or third character on all the shows you and your friends are watching identifies that way, it's cool. Like, I can remember being a 12 or 13-year-old walking out of the movies after watching an action hero movie and thinking I was going to be this big uh, built-like-a-brick-shit-out superhero one day because that was awesome. That was cool. I identified as that. Every boy and girl, they identify with the mainstream culture at the time.
0: Yeah, I was Elle McPherson. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I still am. <laughs> just a
1: little bit shorter maybe. <laughs>
0: <laughs> just a little fatter. <laughs> but, yeah, so it's just, and this is where I'm just like, like it's become so insane that we, you, you have to start to, put, I mean, I, I've been questioning, but people who are just going along with what's happening There has to come a point in time where you have to go, this is all a bit crazy. And I don't know when that will be. It's
1: so multifaceted. It's not just in areas like um, ESG and like things that are happening with your council. Like you said, it's happening with um, social constructs around gender and what that means and what it means to be a human being today. But it's even things that people don't realise are happening within their own field. Like I said, I'm a teacher. We've had conversations in our staff room that about things that pertain directly to education in the state that no one knows about. Wow. We had our union representative come in this week to talk to us, and I said, what are you going to do for the 300 disability support teachers, so actual qualified teachers, who work in disability schools, it's a hard slog. They're really committed people. They're in that because of the love of the work. They've lost their jobs now because of Dan Andrews. What are you going to do about it? Oh, I haven't heard about that. I haven't heard about it? You're in the union and it's on the page of every major paper in the state, mate. What are you doing?
0: Um, look, and, and, and again, and this is where as a society, and this is something that I try to instill in my children, just because it doesn't affect you, shouldn't mean that you don't care or that you don't support someone else that's fighting that battle because one day something will affect you and at that point in time you want to make sure that you've got a good group of people behind you that are lifting you up and pushing you forward and that's what my place is we don't necessarily not everybody's in the same position but we know that when it comes down to it that we're going to have the support of each other and the number of people that i can now rely on that i didn't have 3 years ago is amazing i i, I can't describe the support network that has been developed and yeah, from from my place and the people that we've met and, and the information, like there's a lot of older people there and just their level of knowledge about food growing, you know, hot canning. You know, I've all of a sudden, you know, I've been, you know, if I've got leftover um, zucchinis, you know, I'm actually, you know, Cooking them up and putting them, bottling them, and putting them away, you know, things that I would never have done before. So, you know, when people say, oh, we're all a bunch of, you know, cookers that are sitting around talking, I've learned so many valuable things that I would never ever have dreamt of if it wasn't for my place. And, you know, you can shout as many insults as you want me and the people around me but we're impenetrable we are a community that is not divided we are a community that is united and we're a community that will stand together through everything that they throw at us and you will never find that you know anywhere
1: isn't it empowering to know what community connections and knowledge and Knowing what people can and can't do for you and what you can do for them and actually being a real community can do for you. Like you just mentioned, like food preservation and canning and things like that. That's something our grandparents did on the regular and our great grandparents did just to survive. And that was lost in a few short generations. So now people like yourself, you're handing that. Well, I dare say we'll be handing that down to your kids and we're oh. building back up from the base level. So all the things that are happening now, we've been having in this conversation tonight. It's not uniquely Victorian. It's not uniquely Australian. It's very much a global thing, particularly in the Western world. So what advice would you have for any of the listeners out there in Australia or abroad? What advice do you have for them for the things that we see coming down the pipeline?
0: Definitely primarily connect with your neighbours. Connect with people that you can find support from. I firmly believe that there are going to be things such as food shortages, you know, learn to do preservations, um, you know, and to preserving foods and things like that. And if you can join together with people who have, you know, reasonable-sized backyards, you know, work out what vegetables you can each grow and then you can exchange and barter. Start to become reliant on your community as people and not on the government and your corporations because I believe if we start to scale back and live more simply, I think as a society we'll become better because the trajectory we're going on right now it's not a, it's not pleasant especially for my children and um i think we really need to come back to that connection and your your local my place is definitely something that you could um help facilitate that and it doesn't mean you have to be you know very active you might want to actually just start a small group for you know if you've got you know your street or you know um you know your small town but if you do have a my place near you definitely reach out and you know be active in that if you don't like the the way that my place is running or you don't like the way they're doing things well then there's nothing stopping you actually doing something yourself so it's more about just being active it doesn't have to be my place but i think definitely active in the community but not in the traditional sense, not in the sense of, you know, being involved in community groups that are run or funded by councils or the government because they're controlled. We don't want to be controlled anymore. We want to be autonomous in what we do with very limited restrictions and just have the liberty to do what we want As long as we're caring for one another, I think that's really important.
1: Yeah, we've got to cut the cord, so to speak, and remove that dependency. So much of society is absolutely dependent on the system that's currently in place, and they hold all the cards now. They're killing us with kindness and all the the simplistic things that we can access now, all the the easy comforts of life. We're entirely dependent on that system, and to remove yourself from that and be more self-sufficient, sustainable, if you have any dependence, you should only have dependence on yourself and close people around you so that you can rely and lean on one another when you need it. And tonight's absolutely proven that and the struggle that you guys have, are putting yourself out there and pushing back against. So well done. I hope you all get the outcome that we all hope you get. And you, you actually knock this giant down with a stone, so to speak, but It's been absolutely fantastic to have you on, Belinda. It's a massive relief to know that there's more average, level-headed people out there who are asking questions and questioning why and what's happening with our world. So one last time um, for the listeners who are in Victoria and Australia, where can they reach out to My Place? Do you know if there's any links online for them at all? Yeah,
0: so if you go to uh, myplaceaustralia.org, That will actually give you a list of all the buy places um, throughout Victoria and um, the rest of Australia, and that will give you links to their pages and contacts.
1: Awesome. I'll pop that in the show notes for tonight as well. Thank you for coming on. Keep up the good fight, and I hope to hear from you again with some great results in the future.
0: Thanks, Drew. It's been great.
1: Thank you. All right, everyone. Have a good night.
0: Hey everybody, it's closing time You don't gotta go home, but you can't stay here